Welcome to this BMJ podcast. Surrogate endpoints are commonly used in clinical trials to get quicker results, but as an analysis article on the BMJ.com describes, they can lead to clinical and financial harm. I'm Navjoit Lada, Analysis Editor, and I'm joined now by Professor Michael Baum, Professor Emeritus of Surgery and Visiting Professor of Medical Humanities at University College London and one of the authors of the article. Professor Baum, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Professor Baum, what's your background and how did you come to be interested in this topic? Now, uh, I have to make it clear I am a retired professor of surgery, and uh, my most of my career was dealt with uh, surgery for cancer. But in this context, of equal importance is the fact that I'm visiting professor of medical humanities. And um, this is where the issue of surrogate outcome markers emerges. I constantly remind my medical students and my postgraduate students that we practice medicine to improve length of life and or quality of life. It's really very simple. Anything else is a surrogate. Now, some of these surrogates may uh, be uh, good at giving us notice um, that the treatments are failing but none of the surrogates can predict confidently that they will ultimately interpret to length of life and quality of life and in the paper we have listed a hierarchy uh, of outcomes uh, with the top length of life and quality of life and then in descending order surrogate outcomes which are less and less reliable in predicting the ultimate outcomes. And we see surrogate outcomes, as you say, in all sorts of trials. It is a general issue. For example, um, you might see uh, in trials of statins, people using uh, lipid levels and cholesterol levels when the primary outcome of interest is mortality and cardiovascular events. But as you focus on in your paper, they do seem to be particularly rife in oncology trials. Why is that? The the example you've just given is an excellent example. I am taking statins. <laughs> I'm taking statins because A, it has normalized my lipid level, and B, there is good evidence that that is a surrogate outcome for reducing the risk of dying from uh, cardiovascular disease. So that was an excellent example where the surrogate outcomes work. Now, with cancer, it is notorious. Um, relying on uh, things that sound uh, like survival. And our, the list is in the paper, and you can come up with uh, disease-free survival, progression free survival, um, time to distant recurrence. Uh, it sounds almost as if this is survival. It is not. The fact that the word survival is in that name doesn't mean it's talking about overall survival. It means living a period of time without an uh, objective uh, relapse or um, living a period of time when the objective relapse is not progressing. 
But that is nothing to do with overall survival. And it, it, it's really tricky here. And I'll go so far as uh, <laughs> I go so far as to say that some of these surrogate endpoints have been invented in order to make uh, some hugely expensive drugs um, uh, acceptable uh, when um, they come onto the market. Uh, and I, I simply don't trust them. Okay, so while, as you say, the primary outcomes are essential, the problem arises when the surrogate outcomes are used for um, regulatory evaluation and to bring drugs to the market in the absence of good evidence for their, uh, an intervention's effect on a primary yeah. outcome. So you right. end up in a situation where these, these drugs and interventions are sort of sped to the market. We hear a lot about populist, uh, populist politics. Well, in the name of populism, Congress, uh, I think, bullied or coerced the uh, FDA in America to fast track uh, promising cancer drugs. Now, I, I was, uh, th this was last year, uh, um, over a year ago, in fact, I was asked to have a look at the uh, draft of the 21st Century's Act, as Cures Act, and immediately I could see what was happening, and I wrote a white paper for them predicting what would happen. Uh, the pressure from the politicians, the pressure from the consumer groups, the pressure from Big Pharma would be unstoppable. And so FDA agreed that they would fast-track uh, drugs, many of which are these hugely expensive uh, uh, immunotherapy, monoclonal antibody treatments, hugely expensive, that they would fast-track them using surrogate outcomes. And that's exactly what they've done. Um, I, I think I looked at the first 30 drugs that were fast-tracked um, with this group. Uh, this is a group of good guys who are trying desperately to, to um, do something about the hideous overexpenditure on drugs in America. Uh, the, uh, as every, everyone knows, the rate of expenditure on healthcare in America is unsustainable. Um, Obamacare is under threat with the uh, new uh, president coming in. Um, people will just bankrupt themselves trying to, to get the magic cure for cancer. And I can see this on the horizon. I looked at the first 30 drugs that were approved by FDA in a rush as soon as the act was passed, and all of them were based on surrogate outcomes. So what does this mean for patients? How do you weigh these issues of uncertainty and the financial cost with providing timely access to drugs, particularly in conditions where options may be limited? To my way of thinking, life is of infinite value and you cannot split infinity. So you could argue that any month of life is in infinite value. And I would never put a value on a month of life or even a day of life but the resources are not infinite. So it's tough enough when we're um, arguing about the cost of a drug that's going to extend life by three months. But the 
uh, cost of life that's going to extend disease-free survival by three months is different altogether. Disease-free survival does not translate into overall survival. It's not automatically, it doesn't automatically translate into overall survival. So, NICE has a very, very tough job, and I high regard and great respect for NICE. My American colleagues are envious of NICE, but NICE has to constantly resist being bombarded by pressure from the government's pressure from the consumer advocates, pressure from the pharmaceutical industry to approve uh, drugs that uh, may cost nine, ten thousand pounds, but uh, it's not so much the cost of the, the drug as such, it's what you get for that. And it's limited to, they have to reach a, a threshold beyond which it is legitimate to say, we're not putting a price on a life or a day of a life. We just have to realize the opportunity costs of this, uh, using this drug. And it, it, it's, it's a hideous responsibility for NICE. Um, is this patient's uh, additional three-month disease-free survival um, worth the same as 30 people having a hip replacement? Or what about the treatment of dementia? So you must not lose sight of the bigger picture when you're considering whether expensive drugs should be made available on the basis of surrogate outcome measures. I mean, there are no easy answers and it is a very complex area. But in terms of the use of surrogate markers in trials, I mean, it seems that particularly with things like the 21st Century Cures Act, that's just going to carry on. And um, it's almost it's almost an incentive to use surrogate markers as you can get your trial results quicker and and you almost have this bill that's that's designed to speed a drug onto onto a market. Um, how, how, how do you see this being sort of mitigated somewhat in the future? What can we do? Um, we we need to educate educate the public. Um, I have never patronised my patients or patronize the lay public the uh, and I'll go further often the lay public if I address a, a lay audience or write a paper for a lay magazine uh, because the people reading this have no preconceptions I find it easier to explain to them than to the profession you know given a chance um, I've been able to explain why screening for cancer isn't all that it's made up to be. Lay people understand that if they're given uh, if they're given an opportunity. So I think the message that um, which we're we're giving to our profession can be shared with the public. Um, they're, they're wise enough to see that uh, what's going on. They know from their uh, everyday shopping. Um, it, it, there's no difference. You, you, you've got so much to spend on food in a week 
and you go around the supermarket and you think it would be nice to have a uh, a bottle of Chablis, uh, Chablis tonight, but oh, hang on, then we won't get vegetables. It's it's as simple as that. Now, to me, the surrogate outcome measures are more important for the Data Monitoring and Safety Committee. So any randomized control trial has an independent data monitoring and safety committee, and they are allowed to peek at the results um, and stop a trial if uh, the uh, trends are going the wrong way. So I can understand um, that uh, if the surrogate endpoints like progression-free survival or disease-free survival are going in the wrong direction, then the Data Monitoring and Safety Committee can stop the trial, uh, but not not the other way around. So that I can that I can understand. Um, but the the issues here are so fundamental. It's, it's about everything to do with why we practice medicine, uh, and that is to improve length of life and quality of life. Well, that's a good reminder for us not to lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, Professor Baum, thank you so much for a very thought-provoking discussion. And that paper, Interpretation of Surrogate Endpoints in the Era of the 21st Century Cures Act, is now available on the bmj.com.